Welcome back to Tall Poppy. This is episode 44. I'm your host, leadership advocate, Tathra Street. Thanks for your patience and understanding after my extended break. More on that after the interview. Today, I speak with Sue Lim of Six Ideas. She's doing the future of work now. Here's someone who has not just leveraged her career into being a consultant. She's created a network of people across the planet who are working on projects in distributed teams on complex problems. You'll hear about a project where the client was a global business based in Europe. The consulting team had people in Germany, the UK, and Australia. This really is the future of work, and it's happening today. Sue Lim is creating a virtual global village to create better futures for working and learning. Her organization, Six Ideas, has a fascinating origin and meaning that I think you'll enjoy. They're all about creating collective solutions. And you'll hear about the key success factors for these kinds of projects, what tools they use, and the advice that Sue has about diversity, culture, and the future. I'd like to welcome Sue Lim to Tall Poppy. Welcome, Sue. Thank you, Tathra. So thanks for joining us today. Let's start with where in the world are you? Um, I'm sitting in Melbourne uh, in my home office looking out into the courtyard. Um, So Monday morning, good start to the day. So let's start with um, when I first met you, you were doing something called Work Collective. Can you say um, what that was? And we'll talk about what that is now in a moment. But what, what was Work Collective and what inspired you to start it? Okay, so Work Collective um, was really sort of invented overnight with a very good friend and ex-colleague of mine, Claudia Harm, um, who sits in Germany. Uh, I was in Singapore at the time and we decided that we wanted to work together um, across borders and across boundaries and also include a community of people that were also... um, on their own working or in small teams and essentially get people together to do projects that could be done anywhere in the world. So it was really about a collective of people who could work together, hence the name. Mm, I love it. And at the time you had just come back to Melbourne from Singapore. So tell me a little bit about what that transition was like. Uh, Yeah, interesting. I mean, I came back for um, essentially to maintain my permanent residency. So I I had been in Melbourne before and spent about a decade in Singapore um, and really needed to come back um, to spend time in Australia. Mm -hmm. It was a tough transition, I guess, Um, Singapore being quite uh, an international city, um, lots of travel and certainly all the roles that I played there were uh, regional. Um, so I never really thought about Singapore as being a single place, but, you know, a, as a as a kind of gateway to the rest of the world. Melbourne's a little different. Um, it, it does seem uh, more sort of far away from the rest of the world. So that has been a challenging sort of positioning piece. Um, but it's been great, actually, coming back to Melbourne. It's a great city. Mm. So tell us a little bit bit about the work that you do and what's important to you about it. Mm, Sure. Most of the work that I get involved in is about the imagining and and developing for the future of work um, and in some cases learning. Um, and, you know, most of, most of the adult world, anyway, spends more than half their lives 
at work or doing something work or learning related. Um, and I think because of that, it needs to be a really positive experience um, and it isn't always. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I do or what I get involved in is about trying to make that experience better. So whether that's from an organisational level or a team level or an individual level, the work that uh, I do and Six Ideas does is all about imagining and creating better futures for work and learning. Mm, I love it. So let's get into Six Ideas. So Work Collective rebranded became Six Ideas. Tell me a bit about what that was about. Sure. So um, when Claudia and I started Work Collective, we started to talk about what it was that we were doing. And it was very much around the development of a larger community or a global virtual village, if you like. Um, And as we started to talk about it, there were a number of other people who became very interested and wanted to be a part of it. Um, And as, as part of that uh, sort of expansion, if you like, we decided to rebrand um, partly so that it could be more inclusive and, and um, you know, all of the new partners could actually feel like they owned the piece rather than it being something that they took on um, and also to sort of provide a little bit more of an imaginative brand, I think. Mm. I really like your branding, I have to say. And I love the concept of the virtual village. I'll come back to that in a moment. But um, tell me a bit about where the name Six Ideas came from. Uh, So the genesis of Six Ideas is actually a reference to Alice in Wonderland, where the Mm -hmm. Red Queen um, talks about uh, doing something and Alice says, but that's impossible Um, you know, you can't do impossible things. And the Red Queen says, you know, what what nonsense. Uh, sometimes I think of six impossible things before breakfast. <laughs> um, and it really is a reference to uh, being imaginative and actually dreaming up things that um, may not seem possible. Um, and in the end of Alice in Wonderland, uh, Alice actually needs to go through six impossible things to then eventually kill the Jabberwocky. Um, so that's the reference. But, you know, we didn't want to be too uh, sort of Alice evangelist, if you like. Um, (laughs) Nothing wrong with that, really. I I love it because it really speaks to the idea that we are quite limited in what we think is possible. And, you know, the Red Queen is is sort of adamant that actually achieving six six impossible things before breakfast is possible. And it just, you know, takes it, yeah, it reframes it beautifully, I think. So, yeah, I I love the name and I love your branding. It's great. (laughs) Thank you. We love it too this virtual village thing, what is that and and how does it work? Six Ideas has sort of two component parts to it, if you like. One um, is a community of people who are interested in thinking about and perhaps creating uh, the future of work, learning and life. Um, So we we have about um, 150-odd members um, and we're using Slack as a platform um, to essentially host conversations uh, around anything that interests people. It's a broad church, obviously, the future of work, learning and life. Mm -hmm. Um, And really the idea of that is about sharing knowledge. Um, We're not an organisation that says... Uh, that, you know, knowledge is our USP. Um, We think that if it's shared and debated that actually better outcomes will ensue. 
Um, and the other side of Six Ideas is a consulting network. Um, so again, it's not about an organisation that holds a lot of employees. In fact, very few people are actually employed. Um, so it's about a collection of people coming together and we assemble um, teams around projects uh, full of people who are specifically adapted to that team, if you like. It's a Hollywood model whereby somebody in the network um, secures a project uh, and then assembles a team, sort of a cast that's correct for solving that particular project problem okay, or challenge. Yeah, I like that. So I remember a while back you told me about a project where pretty much everyone, including the client, were in different countries. Can you say a bit about that? And because I mean, for me, that is the future of work, but you're doing it now. So to you know, give people an, an experience of that, a bit of a, an understanding of how that works. Can you describe whether perhaps the locations and um, a little bit about what that project was like and, and how, you know, like you say, people are adapted to that kind of work? I'm interested in what that means too. Uh, yes. Yeah, so this is um, the client is a global uh, retail organization. Um, and they were based uh, in Europe, um, and they came to us uh, through my colleague Claudia, um, who at the time was based in Bonn, in Germany. In Germany. Mm-hmm. So we assembled a team um, to essentially run what was in the main a virtual project. So it was actually um, helping the client build a toolkit Um, so that they could execute a series of projects themselves. So it was kind of toolkit and training, if you like. Mm -hmm. Team was made up of uh, Claudia, obviously, in Bonn, uh, Damien Mears, who was based in Cambridge, uh, myself in Melbourne, uh, another colleague in Sydney. Um, So it was, you know, completely run (laughs) virtually, although uh, those in Europe um, did come together on several occasions to do some face-to-face workshops. Um, And it it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, everybody had a very close and trusted relationship. We delivered the client had no issue around the, the distributed nature of the team. Mm-hmm. The, the project was a success and we continue to do work for this particular client. Mm, I love it. So let's talk a bit more about being adapted for that work. The, the traditional way of working is that we can see each other, we can have a, a face-to-face meeting at the drop of a hat with virtual teams, teams that are dispersed. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? How do you communicate? Is it structured? Um, you know, how do you adapt for that? For this particular project, what was um, definitely useful is that uh, all of us had worked together in some capacity before. So, um, you know, I'd worked with Damien both in Singapore and Hong Kong in the past. Um, And so the nature of understanding what we all brought to the table was very Mm -hmm. clear, and I think that's important. Uh, In some ways, you know, we were able to sort of communicate a little in shorthand as well because we knew each other both – on a personal basis as well as a working relationship. So that certainly mm-hmm. helps. And, um, I mean, that's kind of how the team was assembled as well, based on trusted relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was definitely a key success factor. Um, and then, you know, we use technology of which there are plenty of tools where we, we could work on documents simultaneously. Can I ask um, what tools you and use? share things. Uh, so for that particular project, we used Microsoft Teams. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of 365. Mm-hmm. 
uh, that's not the only tools that we use. So it's certainly not. Um, so what are, what are some of the other ones that you like? Um, I've been working with a team across Singapore and um, Malaysia on, and we've, we've been using Quip, um, which is a great tool for, uh, you know, sharing information, um, putting together shared content, and then using Dropbox for files. So different different ways to do things. Mm, yeah, right. Okay. Um, so I think I, I would probably say we're kind of tool agnostic, <laughs> um, and we're we're constantly testing and trialing things. And, you know, and, and of course, different people will bring different tools to the table. Yeah, that's something that I've really found challenging is that there have been times that I've worked with teams and I'm, I guess, universal um, is Google Docs and being able to collaborate using, especially being able to collaborate in real time. That's the one I found most useful, um, but not everyone is across it or familiar with it and, and that can make things challenging at times. Yeah, definitely. I'm interested in one of the things that that has sort of come out of a description of who you are being having expertise in the cultural aspect of change. Can you say a little bit about what that means? Uh, sure. So I guess I've spent 10 years uh, working across Asia Pacific and certainly the way you might facilitate change or address change dimensions can play out differently in different places. Now, I mostly work with organisations. So I do think organizational culture trumps national cultures but there are certain things to to sort of be mindful of the the cultural dimensions that I typically nod to a sort of Trompenars or Hofstede in terms of a particular framework um, and can you say you know, a bit more you, about that you do see that play out yeah so um, Trompenars has um, a number of different cultural uh, sort of dimensions, um, Hofstede similar as well, um, where they talk about, you know, an individual culture versus a um, collective culture, which means that, mm -hmm. you know, in individual cultures people typically make um, decisions based on themselves, uh, mm. whereas in um, collective cultures people make decisions based on what might be best for the group, for example. Um, Australia is perhaps a little bit more individualistic. Um, China, perhaps a little bit more collective. Although, you know, mm. they are big generalisations, but things that you can definitely be aware of. Um, I think the other dimension that plays out a lot uh, in Asia is the power distance piece. Um, okay, say a bit more about that. Where, where I suppose the nature of hierarchy um, plays out perhaps more strongly in Asian cultures. You know, you... Um, listen to and do what your boss says because they're your boss, mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, Australia um, perhaps is a differentiator, you know, much more flat in terms of hierarchy. People have more voice or, or feel more empowered perhaps. Although, you know, of course those things are all changing. Well, and I wonder if there's part of it is about feeling empowered, but part of it is also perhaps, and again, speculation and generalization here, but having that convict background and being a bit sort of anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian thing. What, yeah, what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, perhaps. I've never really thought about it that way. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was interesting what you said about how workplace culture is perhaps that it trumps national culture. What are your um, what's your experience with that? 
Um, I think as the world becomes more global and and people um, decide to join organisations, the culture of the organisation starts to become really important in terms of providing providing a basis, you know, for individuals to to sort of align. Uh, and I think technology organisations have really started to do this well, I think, um, mm-hmm. or some of the newer organisations where um, perhaps, you know, younger people coming into the workforce are very concerned about, um, you know, their own personal brand and they join organisations that align to their values. So whilst you might grow up in a, a more authoritarian culture, if you're, if you're somebody who perhaps likes to be more empowered or, or wants to work in a flatter organisation, then you might choose um, to work in an organisation that provides that for you. Mm. Interesting. One of the, the um, sort of tenets in terms of what you deal with is around complexity. And I think you're also clearly bringing a value around diversity. So I'm interested in your thoughts on what you see as diversity's role in dealing with complexity. I think the um, the challenges today are more complex. Um, you have a lot of paradox in organisations to solve. Um, so it's, you know, often I guess at its most basic, it's how do we do more with less, if you like. Mm-hmm. My view is the more diversity you have in thinking, the more likely you are going to come up with better solutions to solve for complexity. So it's instead of a single mind trying to solve a complex problem, it's bringing multiple people together who come at it from different angles. Um, and I think that also lets you explore different scenarios because you can hopefully anyway start to limit bias or at least mitigate for it through um, bringing multiple uh, brains to the table. So whether that's uh, cultural, gender, discipline, diversity, uh, I think all of that is a, a healthy mix. What comes to mind is a perhaps a challenge that in in terms of traditional thinking and just you know some of the workplaces that I've seen immediately they would think oh that's going to be too expensive to bring more people in. What how would you respond? Do you mean bring more people into the team? Yeah, well, just, I mean, if you've got one person working on something, that's going to cost based on that individual. But if you're bringing a range of different people in to deal with something, then that's going to obviously cost more. Okay. Um, I suppose I don't think about it in that way as in, you know, one consultant versus many consultants. Certainly when we do a project, we're bringing a team to the table. So, you know, even if um, I might lead a project, you're not just getting me, which is why the community and the consulting network that we have, um, I think, is is critical um, and mm-hmm. a powerful thing because even though perhaps it's me leading a project or somebody else leading a project, the inputs that we're getting are from multiple places. You know, we, we talk about our projects as a team um, and different people are sharing information that you can kind of pick up on. I think the other piece to that is um, it's really important for us to work as a team with the client. Um, mm. So I don't see 
our projects as being uh, us the consultant, you the client um, on a sort of opposite sides of the table. Mm-hmm. The way we certainly prefer to work is that, you know, the, the team is the whole team that's looking for the best outcome. So that includes many people from the client side. It could include project managers. It could include designers. You know, it's not just about us. I think that's a really important uh, factor for success, actually. Mm, yeah. And I can imagine also when you're dealing with complexity, it's it's not a simple, straightforward answer. There's there's going to be a multiplicity of, of ways to approach it. And when you can have of different people bringing different ideas to generate a, I'll call it a collective solution, it's more likely that you're going to save money down the track in terms of you know potential problems and it's going to have a, a more uh, a robust nature to it. Yeah, definitely. I think when you create things together, then uh, that that in turn uh, leads to ownership. You know, consultants typically leave at some point in time. So there's definitely the need to kind of transfer ownership or at least co-create mm. solutions together. Yeah, for sure. And of course, ownership is, is kind of essential because without that, there's no sustainability to the solution as well. Correct. Right? Exactly right. So I'm going to move into my leadership questions and I'm going to start with what does leadership mean to you now that's different than earlier in your life? I mean, certainly growing up in an Asian culture, I suppose my default view on leadership was was much more authoritarian, if you like. Mm-hmm. I've been incredibly fortunate to have worked with excellent leaders as mentors. I think seeing that in action has been, you know, kind of transformative for me. I see leadership as something to do with, um, you know, a kind of passion that then inspires others. Mm. As I became a leader, I started to understand the importance, you know, of managing that well um, in terms of leading teams and, you know, keeping people inspired or or, um, in that kind of passionate space and also empowering them to do what they do best. Mm. Um, leadership can come from anywhere as well. It's not just about the person who's been empowered because they've got a particular title, um, mm-hmm. and I certainly encourage that. In terms of the future of work, what do you think we need to pay most attention to to prepare for what's coming? Gosh, that's a really huge question. I think, I mean, I've been doing a lot of Sort of thinking and perhaps talking about um, the rise of artificial intelligence or, or you know, machine learning, mm-hmm. um, robotics in the workplace, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the key thing to consider in all of that, you know, my, my view is all of that is going to come, regardless of what people, you know, want. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my view on all of that is in order for that to be um, a positive thing, we need to continue to consider the human, that Mm. it needs to be very much about creating human-centred or um, people-centred solutions and Mm. um, we need to take a very empathetic look. So, you know, it's fine to sort of start to bandy around big figures around, you know, half the workforce being replaced, but, you know, that is not going to be a tenable solution mm-hmm. um, if 
if the people who are going to be displaced are not taken care of. Mm. Um, so there's some interesting things uh, going on. I think uh, the exploration of universal basic income, um, you know, I don't think uh, the problems are being solved, but there's certainly, you know, lots of very intelligent people looking at all of those things. And I think that's going to be really important to consider. And what do you think about universal basic income as an idea? Uh, I think it's actually a really interesting um, sort of social idea to um, look at the implementation of. I think it requires um, a lot of, again, diverse input, you know, from yeah. governments and governance yeah. as well as, you know, community input. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some interesting uh, sort of pilots being conducted and I think there's a lot of more exploration to be done I mean I I, you know I'm certainly no expert in that area so Mm. um, what I see you doing though is that you are preparing for the future of work by doing what there's I guess the the idea of being sort of entrepreneurial and doing your own thing but also connecting with others and being able to um, you know work remotely and 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 have global connections and and that's yeah that's what I see you doing so in terms of preparing I kind of um, that's part of the reason why I asked you to be on tall poppy because I think the path that you have chosen is is really inspiring and and you you are a demonstration of it it working and that it's possible and that people can make that transition so is there anything from the journey that you've taken and the perhaps some of the challenges that you've faced that you want to you know share to help sort of enlighten us about how best to prepare for the future? Um, I think something that we've done, I mean, I'm not sure that it's necessarily purposeful, but we have kind of embraced the uncertainty of it. Um, okay. Certainly I think about it as one continuous experiment and, you know, Claudia and I often talk about perpetual beta you know, it's the thing of, well, let's try it and adjust as we go. I think that's a, that's real, there's a real contrast from get it right the first time and don't make mistakes and don't fail. Like that's kind of the subtext of the status quo. And, and you know, there's lots of people talking about, you know, iteration and fail fast and all that kind of stuff, but I don't think that's the norm. So, so can you say a bit more about um, the importance of iteration from your perspective? Yeah, well, I, mean, I think the reality is that um, you can't actually develop something that's done. You know, the world is changing so quickly, you need to kind of keep up with it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's um, lots of sort of quotes around, uh, you know, to look forward, you need to at least look twice as far back or, you know, even an Alice in Wonderland piece around, you know, the Red Queen saying you've got to run twice as fast to stay where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is, there is no future prediction really. I mean, you can speculate and you can think about the preparation for it, but things move very quickly. You know, there's one thing to kind of be responsive. There's the other thing to actually just be um, sort of loose fit in a way so that when things occur, you've, you've got the ability to be agile and just sort of, you know, shift along with it. I think the other, the other piece for us about um, trialling things is that it's interesting and exciting. Um, you know, every day is different. We're, we're testing new things all the time. We're encouraging, you know, when someone's got an idea, we just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're passionate about it, then get it done. Um, and if they're not, then they won't. So <laughs> I, I think that's, that's sort of the, 
the piece around, well, where do you want to spend your discretionary time, you mm. know, and, and where that's spent is typically where you focus on something that's important to you. Mm. And I guess the, the thing about our network is that it allows for that individual to, you know, that individual exploration. So, you know, if you want to spend time with your children after school, that's that's totally fine. <laughs> or, you know, if you want, you know, go work in a co-working space for half a day or, you know, set up a little startup company with somebody else, then w- there's, there's no rules around our network in that sense. So there's also a lot of risk in terms of, you know, what's coming, whether it's, you know, like you say, people being displaced, you know, just in terms of people's lives, but also the economy, you know, there's there's lots of um, things that people are afraid of. But I also see a lot of um, hope and a lot of optimism. And so I'm curious what you think it's going to take for humanity to thrive into the future instead of being sort of this default of it just happening as um, by accident almost. Um, I think empathy is a, is a great skill that we could do more of. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you? How does it play out in the work you do? I think there's something about people getting, you know, continuing or building curiosity, the ability to continually ask why, um, why something is, mm-hmm. and not to walk past things, you know, to kind of get emotional and get get to to kind of uh, considering the challenges and understanding why things are happening and doing something about them if they're not happening in the way that think they should perhaps mm. and then getting collaborative so getting together with um, other people so I, and I think getting close to your um, community whatever that is you mm. know it could be your local community it could be your community of practice could be the people who you work with um, and and actually making things happen rather than waiting for them to happen for mm, you a lot I really liked what you said about being emotional can you say more about that why, why do you think that's important I think emotions are the are the seed of action. That's how things get done. And yeah, wow. I think we, you know, certainly in the corporate world, I think uh, there's a real tendency for apathy or um, you know just to just sort of ignore things. And, and I think often you know those that are the emotional people in the organisation often get marginalised, you mm-hmm. know, because they're difficult or they're challenging or. Um, but actually, I think in some cases, they're the people that you might be best listening to because mm-hmm. they feel passionate enough about something to fight for it, to put themselves on the line. Um, and I think that can be a very, very powerful piece for organisations to pay attention to mm. um, because often Great. they're the things that lead to uh, innovation or the solutions to something bigger. Mm, fantastic. I love it. My last question is about if someone came to you with an idea, a change initiative, they wanted to write a book or start a creative project or some kind of collaboration, but they had some reluctance recognizing that internal and external barriers, um, what advice would you have for them? I think if, um, if it's something that's very meaningful to them um, and they're passionate about it, that they should totally go for it. I guess that thing about embracing uncertainty, so not thinking about those sorts of projects perhaps in a linear way but a continuous exploration of whatever it is that they they are looking at. 
Nice. But I think it's not enough. It's not enough to just be interested. You know, you have to absolutely make it work, make it happen. Um, mm. So action is, is absolutely required. Um, do you have any final words or final thoughts or anything that's important to you that you'd like our listeners to consider? Hmm. I think to um, absolutely get curious about the world, uh, you know, to to constantly ask why and inv- invite others to um, to wander at things with you, um, you know, and get emotional, get collaborative uh, and get passionate about doing new things. Mm, beautiful. Oh, love it. Fantastic. Thank you, Sue, for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great. On one hand, this stuff just makes so much sense. But when I look at the extent of the contrast between how Sue and Six Ideas do their work and how most of the rest of the work that I see in the world is done as far as those traditional ways of working, it really highlights how much we have to learn from this approach. So some of the key ideas, get emotional, get collaborative, get passionate, get curious, embrace uncertainty, question why things are the way they are. She says it's the emotional, passionate people who can help us innovate and solve problems. Yet we don't really value those folks or their contribution much, do we? Some progressive companies and startups are, at least on paper, and some on the ground as well. And we're starting to recognize how important it is to create environments where different ways of thinking and diverse perspectives are valued, you know, by listening to them, by inviting them to the table, incorporating their ideas, not just lip service. It's about being sure to include those who think, look, and feel differently than the way you think, look, and feel. This helps mitigate the risk of bias and generates more robust solutions. I appreciate how Sue really puts this stuff into practice. So what's this about this idea of embracing uncertainty? It's something that we hear about a lot, right? You know, it's, it's unsettling. And perhaps it's a bit like a muscle, like the more that we can practice accepting that we don't know how things are going to turn out and that despite our plans and goals, we don't know what the future holds. Maybe the more we do that, maybe it gets easier. What have you noticed about this? Does uncertainty stress you out or excite you? Does it depend on the context and how uh, invested you are in how things turn out? What are your practices around embracing uncertainty? Get in touch via the links in the show notes or directly via tathrastreet.com. And you can also find out more about Sue and Six Ideas as as well as the resources we mentioned. Yep, you guessed it, in the show notes. Um, and if there's anything missing or incorrect, I do want to know. I appreciate it when people contact me about this stuff, typos included. And, you know, one of the resources that she mentioned was um, Hofsted and the sort of cultural uh, insights that come from, from that. And so I recommend for a bit of fun, click on the link in the show notes on Countries Compare and enter a handful of countries, including your own, and see what you find. It's pretty fascinating in terms of the scales and the, the, like what they measure. It's really insightful stuff. So, to address the question on some of your minds, what's up with being off air so long? So yeah, this is the first episode of 2018, and I had planned to take a bit of a break and start again at the end of January, and that didn't happen. I was blessed with the opportunity to do some work with a very cool new startup, The Plato Project, in January. Um, It's a very forward-thinking, values-aligned business school, and it took up a bit of time in January, and at the end of it, the plan was that I would get back into making more episodes of Tall Poppy. 
took me a bit longer than planned to get back on track. Why? Well, I don't have a clear answer, but what I will tell you is that I'm experiencing a significant shift in how I see the world. Perhaps a sort of personal paradigm shift. Maybe some of you can relate to this. So the beliefs I have about the world are changing. It's not something I can accurately describe, but to use a few rudimentary words, I'll say that it's a move from a belief system that had a very strong element of faith to one that is more empirical. This has been more unsettling and uncomfortable than I could imagine, and it's not something I'm doing with any kind of intention, and there's a range of factors contributing to this, and it's not fun. However, this too shall pass. I don't know what this looks like, but I trust that it will. I haven't lost all faith, but I have to say that I am missing having more of it. So that's a bit of a snapshot of what's going on. And though I've been a bit lost at times, um, I also have been doing interviews for this coming year. So I've got a few themes that I'm working with for Tall Poppy this year. And this, this is some of them. Women and power, discrimination and diversity, business for good, disrupting democracy, and a well-being oriented theme. Some of the interviews I've got in the pipe cross over into more than one, and initially I thought I would do it in in batches, you know, one theme at a time. But just as in business and in life, sometimes things don't fit neatly into boxes and don't work in a linear fashion. So it's going to be a bit more of a flow than a compartmentalizing of the themes. So what you can expect in the coming weeks, this includes my conversation with Adam Jacoby of My Vote on digitizing how we make collective decisions using blockchain. Very exciting, the things on the horizon with his work. It's very, very cool. Uh, I also talked to a few people who have experienced discrimination at work, how they dealt with it and their take on diversity. And I've lined up a few things that looking at like academic research that debunks myths around women and leadership. Um, Of course, more on the future of work from different perspectives and conversations with people who have carved out their own paths and are doing some fascinating stuff that can help us question why things are the way they are, why we are the way we are, um, and help us prepare for the future of work, how we might bring more of a human-centered approach to leading in business, work, and life. Thanks for listening. And again, I appreciate your patience and understanding with the extended break. Any feedback is welcome. Please send it to poppy at tathrastreet.com. You can find the links in the show notes or click on contact us on the website. That's all for now. Catch you on the flip side. Music.